Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, hosted by MC8 and Big Steel. It's every Thursday, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Let's go. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men... How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Media. Jim Morrison died at the age of 27, and he lived a life of unpredictability. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. Eight would be the number of months between when he started to record his last album and when he took his last breath. Three more would be the number of bandmates he left behind in his expat dust when he left L.A., another lost angel for the City of Lights. Another one would be the number of bricks that landed at his feet and got him swept up in the civil disorder and student protest with the other street fighting men. Another two would be the number of stories he'd fall from his hotel window when he lost his balance, serenading no one in particular. One more would be the number of subterranean bathroom stalls he would become intimately acquainted with in the bowels of a filthy rock and roll club in order to get the fix he desperately needed. And 12 would be the number of hours he had left to live after he would have sworn he was approached by that googly-eyed helter-skelter murderer, the man he knew simply as the Wizard. On this, our 11th episode of Season 2, Expats, two-story tumbles, bathroom stalls, and Jim Morrison lost in fantasy. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club.
Jim Morrison sat at the small table outside the Café de Flore and hoped that someone would recognize him. He hoped that one of these random Parisians walking through another one of their random days would notice the big bad American rock star, alone, prone, in contemplation. That maybe, just maybe, one of them would stop, lower their sunglasses down to the bridge of their nose, squint their eyes and look real close, search their mind. They knew this one, wasn't he? But mostly they'd stop for a brief moment and that look of recognition would slowly creep across their face and then it would be gone. Light bulb off, they kept walking. In the spring of 1971, Jim Morrison felt his relevance slowly slipping away. It slipped away in the prison sentence that followed him like a dark cloud. Slipped away when he lost his status as a rock and roll provocateur, public enemy number one. He had been caught, slapped on the wrist, threatened with further punishment, and left to grow a beard and bloat like some large marine mammal no longer up for the chase. I've been down so goddamn long that it looks like up to me. Paris was as good a place as any to get beached. Paris was desperately needed. A breath of fresh air, a change of scenery. The Café des Flores, the Eiffel Tower, Notre Dame, the Seine. The place was replete with art and culture and history. A siren calling out to the artists, the poets, the lovers. Jim looked at himself in the mirror and saw all of those things. He didn't recognize much else. Jim arrived in Paris with nothing more than the clothes on his back and a few extras in a suitcase. He and Pamela took to strolling the city, sitting at small tables in the late afternoon sun, coffees in hand, watching the world slowly pass them by. In Paris, Jim Morrison wasn't THE Jim Morrison, the lead singer for The Doors. He was just another Jim. He was barely recognized at all. It would take a few minutes during a conversation with a stranger before he was made. Hey, wait a minute, aren't you... Jim's drinking slowed down. He shaved off his beard. He wasn't angry. His temper went away. Wasn't jealous. Wasn't possessive. He was loving life and loving Pam. And loving seeing a new city through eyes that weren't burdened by hangovers. Burdened by the demanding schedule of an American rock band. Recording, rehearsing, playing shows, speaking with reporters, going through the motions, playing the game. In Paris, it seemed as though Pamela's hope for a complete reinvention of life as they knew it was coming true. They drove south, toward wine country, made their way into Spain, Madrid, Granada. They hopped a plane to Marrakesh and crashed with Pamela's friend, the Count's mother, at the Villa Taylor, a large estate outside the old city. When they returned to Paris, Jim was clear-headed, refreshed, recharged, ready to reassess everything, his life. Maybe they'd stay in Europe forever. Maybe he'd never go back home. And then, Jimbo showed up. Who is here? Pamela asked when she first found out. As if she and Jim had gone to great lengths to disappear somewhere on the edge of civilization. At the edge of Hollywood civilization, at least. And Jimbo's presence was a breach, an infiltration, a bubble burst. They'd been found. Jim, too, thought it was odd. How did Jimbo even pay for a plane ticket across the Atlantic? How the hell did he get his shit together long enough to board a plane and then stumble his way through the streets of Paris and track Jim down? The questions were useless. There was a loud knock on their hotel door and he was there. He'd never say exactly how he got there, no matter how many times he was asked. He was a living, breathing, unreliable narrator. But there was no skirting around the obvious. Jimbo was there, in Paris. Jim and Pamela's serendipitous retreat had come to an end. The third wheel had been reintroduced. Things were going to change. 
Back in America, L.A. Woman was released on April 19, 1971, the Doors' final record for Elektra Records under their contract. No one knew it at the time of its release, but it would be the Doors' final record with their original lineup. It had been preceded a few weeks before by one of the album's two singles, Lover Madly, and both the album and the single commanded the charts. The album hung on to the charts for a solid three months. And for the album's cover, Jim got his revenge on the record company and their desire to market him a rock and roll Dorian Gray. He got revenge doubly. Elektra had included younger, clean-shaven images of Jim for the release of the compilation album 13 and also the live album Absolutely Live. Even though Jim no longer looked like he had when the doors began, he was heavier, he had a bushy beard. On the cover of LA Woman, Jim appeared next to the other members of the band in his current form, bloated and hairy. This was reality, baby. This is raw and unfiltered, just like the music. But even better, he'd had Jimbo go to the photo shoot for him as his proxy. And the two were looking increasingly similar and no one knew. Jimbo sat on a stool and slouched his shoulders towards the ground, intentionally allowing the others in the band to dwarf him per Jim's instructions. Fuck that label. Jim sent his proxy to the photo shoot and then left the country, bailed two times. He'd gone away and who was gonna stop him? The reviews for LA Woman were a mixed bag. You can kick me in the ass for saying this, Richard Meltzer wrote in his review for Rolling Stone. This is The Doors' greatest album and the best album so far this year. Robert Criscow said that the band has never sounded better. Melody Maker, on the other hand, called it a spunkless, sterile effort that sounds as if it's been put out just so everyone won't forget the name. Jim's antics had split Doors fans into opposing camps. Jim wanted a break from all that critical drama. The drama about whether or not the Doors were the real deal. A for real American blues band or a psych band or just a bunch of posers who deserved to crawl back to some bungalow on Venice Beach. When Jimbo showed up, Jim started his coughing fits. He would start to cough dry at first and then something would rumble loose and he'd go on for a solid 10 or 20 seconds before he coughed up blood. Sometimes it would be some spotting on a tissue or a handkerchief, and other times he coughed up dark, crimson clots. It worried Pamela. It was one thing to control Jim on his own, but now he seemed hell-bent to get off the rails again. The coughing fits only seemed to bother him when they were actually happening. Afterwards, he couldn't wait to move on to the next thing, the next drink, the next snort, the next meal, the next indulgence. Jimbo sniffed out the seedier side of Paris. It wasn't all outdoor cafes and riverside walks and idyllic set pieces. It was a city of tortured poets and lost souls, a city where down-on-their-luck artists could go even further down, as far down as their wallet and personal constitution could take them. Paris was underground, seedy, dark, sticky. It was down a darkened hallway, around a corner, inside a bathroom stall covered in black marker graffiti. Paris was not the city of light if you just knew where to look. Jimbo urged Jim, Forget about all that redemption nonsense. Redemption is for pussies. What you really want to do is get gone. Real gone. Long gone, daddy-o. Step inside a stall in the darkest spot of one of Paris's unknown recesses and get gone forever.
Pamela knew that her fantasy was up the moment the gym fell out the window of the hotel in the heart of the left bank. Straight down onto Rue de la Ancienne Comédie. It was a comedy for sure, someone's comedy. Pamela wasn't laughing though. Jim had a lot to drink that night. His drinking had increased daily since Jimbo's arrival, and he was reaching levels of debauchery that she hadn't seen since the last time she was in Los Angeles and lost track of Jim's whereabouts. Perhaps he was out with Patricia somewhere that night. That last night in LA when they fought and went their separate ways once again, or with some other floozy groupie he had just met. With Jim, you never knew. But Pamela knew that she just had to look the other way unless she wanted to see something that she really wouldn't like. He drank Stella's that night, and then some brandy, then some whiskey straight from the bottle, and then back to the Stella's again. He had been drinking for so long that night that it was no longer night. The sun had risen and it was a new day. Another day to drink and lose himself. Jim opened the tall window in their room, and Pamela asked him what he was doing on the couch where she fought off sleep. He stuck his hands out into the cool morning air. It was raining. He grasped the wrought iron railing outside the window and pulled himself outside. He expected to fall at that moment, but didn't. He lifted a leg up and made an effort to stand on the railing and in his drunken state, lord over Rue de l'Ancienne Comédie below. In his mind, he was back on stage, on stage in Philadelphia or Phoenix or Mexico City. The rapidly descending rain pattered on the top of cars and buildings and it was the applause he craved. It was raucous and roaring, consistent, loving. The audience, he did this for them. He pulled up his second leg and yelled out onto the wet morning. Well, I just got into town about an hour ago. He sang to no one in particular. His voice was ragged and beat down. A shadow of the shadow that he had brought to the LA woman sessions. He stumbled, balancing his bloated frame atop the thin black slice of old school architecture. He spread his arms, invincible. Invincible or simply out of fucks to give. Took a little around to see which way the wind blow. Pedestrians below on early morning jaunts looked up and remarked at the oafish American about to plummet. Not to his death, mind you. Not from two stories up, but to a perfectly embarrassing and perhaps damaging landing on the wet street below. And they didn't know who he was, and they weren't clapping for him, but the rain was, and the rain told him to keep going. Pamela yelled from the couch, Jim needed to stop fucking around. Jim and Pamela had recently returned from Marrakesh to find their flat temporarily unavailable. Pamela booked them a room on the second floor at the hotel, not too far from Notre Dame in Luxembourg Palace. A swank slice of Parisian history, the hotel stakes its claim as the first boutique hotel in the world, not to mention the place where Oscar Wilde succumbed to meningitis in 1900. It would be either him or the wallpaper, he famously said right before he died. One of them had to go, and the wallpaper is still there. And now Jim and Pamela were renting a room there, as were many rock stars in the 1970s, the decade where rock and roll became synonymous with decadence. As much as Paris was about recharging batteries, it was also about decadence. Jim was writing poetry for himself, but it wasn't working. He and Pamela were living off of the small fortune he had accrued in the doors, the part of the fortune that had yet to be lost on legal fees. And they did what they wanted and went where they wanted. Jimbo introduced Jim to the place that would become his go-to haunt in Paris. Deep underground. No windows. No light. Just darkness. Debauchery. 
deep down. The rock and roll circus had opened in 1969 and quickly made its name as the rock club in town. It hosted shows by everyone from Led Zeppelin to the Beach Boys. On the walls were murals of rock and roll stars, mostly English groups painted as clowns. One of the murals featured none other than Jimi Hendrix. But as quickly as the circus became known for rock stars and rock shows, it just as quickly gained a reputation as a place to score and shoot heroin. A true shooting gallery. The shows started to play second fiddle. The clientele got shadier. The venue became filthier. The bathrooms became notorious. Drugs, sex, whatever you wanted, the circus had it. Especially if it was the kind of desire that you couldn't talk about with just anybody. The circus was the perfect place for the people who liked to go down slow. By 1971, the rock and roll circus was known as much as the place not to be as it was the place to be. Pamela's dealer friend and sometimes lover, the Count, supplied the club with junk. A rumor had started that it was the Count who had given Janis Joplin the lethal dose of heroin that put her under once and for all. And for those who wanted to get rock star high, and perhaps even approach that oblivion-inducing buzz that caught the likes of Janice and others, the Count had the shit that rendered the real world irrelevant. Jim found himself on the couches of the circus on any given night, sometimes with friends, other times alone. And Pamela had introduced him to the Count, and soon he was sending lines upon lines of the Count's smack up his nostrils. Jimbo sat next to him or stood next to him as each line went straight into his system, doing lines with Jim in tandem and they'd race each other, ready, set, go, and see who could get fucked up the fastest. But outside his window on the second floor of the hotel, there was no Jimbo. It was all Jim. Monkey see, monkey do. It was three or four sheets to the wind, standing outside in the rain, balancing on the slippery wrought iron. Pamela yelled at Jim again to get back inside to stop before he hurt himself, and she rested her head on the couch's throw pillow and closed her eyes. Within seconds, she heard it. Smack! She jumped from the couch. She was up, she was alert, she was so stoned but fought through her self-medicated haze to get her bearings and figure out what was going on. She looked over at the window, still thrown wide open, small spits of rain making their way inside the hotel room. The wind blew gently inside. Jim was gone. Real gone. Pamela ran to the open window and stuck her head outside. Jim lay spread eagle on top of a parked car on the street below. It had broken his fall when he slipped and tumbled the two stories to the ground. And there was a Jim Morrison-sized dent in the hood of the car. He writhed around a bit, too fucked up to feel any real pain, but disoriented enough from the fall to require a moment or two to collect himself. And by the time Pamela had made it downstairs to the street, Jim was off the hood of the car and upright. She ran to him, held him close, and made sure he was really okay. Jim laughed. It was just a laugh, a goof, just a stupid thing. He was fine. He'd make it. He felt that wave of confidence overtake him. He was invincible. He could fall out of a hotel window in Paris on a rainy morning, shit-faced off his nut. could do anything. Anything. First, he felt like another beer. Wait till Jimbo heard about this. Pamela had a better idea. She had some extra smack from the count. Some rainy day smack. It was a rainy day after all lay back and groove on a rainy day. And they both knew that the thing that would make them feel more invincible than anything was a couple of fast, strong lines of heroin. It was like landing on a car from a second-story window, so fast and so hard and so unexpected. And when you did it, 
and walked away from it, there was no better feeling in the world. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles. 
podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. The brick landed near Jim's feet with a clunk. Jim noticed it coming at him, soaring through the air, and leapt out of the way to avoid being hit. He pulled Pamela to his side, shielding her. The brick wasn't meant for them. Jim could tell after he took stock of the area outside Place Saint-Michel, where he and Pamela were returning from after dinner. The brick had been thrown by a kid, one of a small group of kids who had been aiming for the cops hanging out down the street. The French police looked just like the American police to Jim. Oppressive fuckers. Same shit, different language. Jim stood on the side of the street with Pamela clutched tight against him and silently rooted for the David in this street war scenario. And now the brick laid at Jim's feet. Red pieces splintered on the cobblestone below from the impact. And the cops took notice and yelled at the kids in French. The one who had thrown the brick, he couldn't have been older than 17. He interlocked his arms together in the universal sign of up yours and spat in the cop's direction. His friends grabbed some rocks and began to hurl those too. Multiple Davids taking on multiple Goliaths. Oh shit, Jim thought. This is gonna be good. Jim and Pamela moved out of the way as the cops began to take chase. This was music to his ears. Those kids were heroes. Fuck authority, fuck the police, fuck the man. And God bless these fucking kids who aren't gonna take any bullshit. It was exactly the kind of thing Jim had preached from the stage, the sort of anti-authoritative stance he pied-pipered the masses towards. Jim was known to tussle a bit himself, taunt a cop here, get roughed up by a cop there, but it had been a while. It had been a while since he stuck out his foot and tripped up the status quo, and this little scuffle near Place Saint-Michel made him hungry for action. These kids inspired him. Brave, sure, dumb, maybe, but fuck it. They were standing up for something. Jim saw these little street scenes break out around the city, usually on weekends. Sometimes the drama was high, and other times it was more subdued. Protest and unrest and civil disobedience wasn't just an American thing. It pumped through the veins of the French working class and continued to echo the events of recent years. No one was about to forget what happened in 1968. In 68, students took to the streets of Paris and rioted. The unrest started first in the suburbs in a small college town brought on by students who were dissatisfied with the conditions of their university, which was under construction while pretending to be fully operational. They wanted an end to classism, conservatism. They wanted to visit dorms of the opposite sex. They wanted less repression and condescension from the police and other authority figures. They wanted an end to the Vietnam War. It was 1968, and it was high time for a complete rethink of society. The students took their suburban protest to the city, to Paris. They needed a larger audience. It wasn't about the conditions of the university anymore. Now, it was about the inability of the authoritative powers that be to listen to anyone under 30 years old. It was about the old guard failing to keep up with the times. 
cops shut down the university protest and forced their way in Paris. The riots spilled outside. Tens of thousands of students marched. The clashes with police continued. Kids dislodged cobblestones from the street to use as makeshift weapons. They threw bricks. The night of May 10, 1968, the students built barricades to protect themselves from riot squads. In response, the police used upwards of 5,000 grenades that one night alone. 5,000 grenades, tear gas grenades, and also riot control CS grenades, the sort that were being used by soldiers in Vietnam. Everywhere, I hear the sound of marching, charging feet, boy. A general strike began. Workers united with students, sit-ins, demonstrations, occupations. What started as a student protest had become a national protest. The people were tired of being downtrodden. They were standing up. President de Gaulle hopped on a helicopter and got the fuck out, panicked. The day he left, tens of thousands of protesters led by local unions walked through the streets of Paris chanting adieu de Gaulle, adieu de Gaulle. And that vibe hung around Paris, hung in the air. It was never properly cleared. The resentment couldn't be swept away with political concessions. The resentment was still there. Jim knew resentment. He could talk about that shit all day. He resented his father. He resented the government, the club owners, at places like the Whiskey who tossed his ass out on the street for a couple of curse words. But he may have resented the police the most. As he stood and watched the police take off after the kids, he got the Rolling Stones on his brain. Hey, so my name is called Disturbance. I'll shout and scream, I'll kill the king, I'll rail at all his servants. He told Pamela he'd be right back. He bent down and picked up the brick, and he was off and running. Jim Morrison, the street fighting man. Jim ran hard, probably harder than he'd run since the days in Venice Beach when he was rail thin and could move his body easily from one place to another. And as he ran down a street in the Latin Quarter, he felt his body fat just melt away. The wind whipped through his long hair, and he was lean, he was mean, he was a svelte street fighting machine. Cause summer's here and the time is right, or fighting in the street, boy. He gained on the cops, and when he felt he was close enough, he launched the brick. It soared through the air and smacked one of the cops right on the back of his neck. The cops stopped and turned around. The kids kept running and disappeared around a corner. No matter. The cops wanted Jim now. Jim made contact. He was now public enemy number one. And finally, someone noticed. Fucking pigs! Jim shouted. Shouted so hard he had to steal his feet into the ground and lean his upper body forward, his fists clenched. Come get me, you motherfucking cocksuckers! And with that, Jim tore off in the opposite direction. His adrenaline was through the roof. His chest thumped. His heart was beating so hard he could feel his shirt pull away rhythmically from his body. Now he ran even faster than before. He was the hunted now. He was the one they wanted. Each storefront and restaurant and apartment building was a blur of concrete and brick and stucco. He dodged a kid on a bike, jumped out of the way of a car coming out of a narrow alleyway. He jumped over a fire hydrant at full speed and caught the top of the hydrant with his left shoe. He hit the pavement, chest still thumping, sweaty, fired up. He wasn't even off the pavement when he felt two sets of hands grab him by the back of his shirt and yank up. Jim. Jim turned his head to look at Pamela standing next to him. Jim, are you all right? Kind of slipped off somewhere there. Jim looked down at the ground to see the brick that had been thrown by the kids still next to his feet, still missing a few shards of red. 
He turned his head again and saw the cops and kids farther away in the distance now, still in their game of cat and mouse. Jim itched his belly underneath his shirt and cleared his throat. Well, shit, I guess we better get going. And for a moment, it had all seemed so real to him. The running, the chasing, the adrenaline and the heartbeat. But he knew now that it wasn't real. Knew that it was just a fantasy. He could tell the difference. Sometimes it wasn't so easy. The line was blurred. Sometimes the past would come back and it would bring fear with it. And it wouldn't be so easy to snap out of. Jim Morrison saw things all night long. Things that weren't there. People who weren't there. He could have sworn they were there. And they were there on the street corners, leaning up against cars, skulking down darkened alleys. He thought a lamppost was a man, and then mistook a bicycle for a woman, crawling around on all fours looking for something on the damp Paris sidewalk. He was afraid the visions would escalate, that he would see the faces of Jimmy and Janice again like he had at the show in New Orleans that it was all part of a larger mindfuck that was taking part in his head, against his will. It was ongoing, but getting worse, he was powerless to stop it. Or maybe it was just the sweet and sour chicken, the meal he had earlier that evening, or maybe the beers he chased it with. Yeah, that was it. Maybe he was just hallucinating from bad Chinese, funky visions brought on by funky chicken. On the last night, Jim Morrison was alive. He recoiled at faces seen in the dark on the streets of Paris, and decided he'd finally had enough. He was going to the movies, alone. Dinner with friends had been nice, but he needed a minute to clear his head. Pamela went back to their flat, and Jim walked on. When he first arrived in Paris, he detoxed alcohol as much as he could, but old habits die hard, especially when old friends show up to lead you back to those old habits. He'd ramped up the drinking again, not to mention the drugging, and on this night, he thought he'd take himself for a walk in a movie and contemplate dialing back to the bodgery some more. He stumbled upon a theater playing a revival of Pursued, a Robert Mitchum Western from 1947. Bought his ticket, grabbed some popcorn, found a seat. The seat he found was down front in the center of the row and where the theater wasn't very full. He propped his feet up on the seat in front of him. He found the movie to be more psychological melodrama than High Noon Gunslinging, which was fine. Related to Mitchum's character, Jeb, who loses his family and is chased by rivals. Tragic, catching hell from all sides. Jim could relate. Is the seat taken, brother? He heard someone whisper a few seats down to his right. He looked over and saw the frame of a short man in the light reflecting off the movie screen, settling down into a seat two away from him. The seat was a few down, and Jim thought, why would he know if it was taken? And also, with all these empty seats in this theater, why was this guy sitting so close to Jim? Nope, Jim whispered back, short and sweet and to the point, and the man kept talking. Can't go wrong with Bob Mitchum, he whispered again. Jim was torn between politely nodding at the man's comments and just ignoring him altogether. And they were already 20 minutes into the movie, and Jim didn't come to the theater to talk to strangers in the dark. And the man leaned over towards Jim and carried on with that hoarse whisper. People call Bob Mitchum a wild man. Unpredictable, one of the crazy ones, brother. But that was then, and this is now. 
1971, brother. We're all wild men now. The whole world is wild. Unpredictable. Jim started to catch a weird vibe and turned to look at the whispering man again. The light from the movie screen caught some of the contours of the man's face. Jim saw his long hair, his beard, his bushy eyebrows. Saw his eyes roll around inside his head like there was zero gravity inside his eye sockets and his eyeballs were untethered and went where they wanted without reason. Wouldn't you say, the whispering man continued, wouldn't you say that we're all wild men, brother? I know all about you, all about you. I know where you came from and I know where you're going. Then the man smiled, his teeth crooked and his eyeballs ping-ponging around and immediately a shiver went up Jim's spine. Holy shit, the wizard. The wizard here in Paris. Jim's hands started to shake. He slowly put his popcorn bag shaking on the floor next to him. How? He had been in a state prison in Los Angeles since April of 1971, sentenced to death for the murders of seven people, including Jim's hairdresser, Jay Sebring. He was behind bars, locked up. They caught him. Then who the fuck was this guy? Jim was seeing things. He knew it. He shook his head. He needed fresh air. He needed a cigarette. He needed to get far away from whoever the fuck this little whispering man was two seats down from him at the second-run theater. Jim hit the street and gasped, as if he hadn't breathed for minutes. He wondered if he had. He had tensed up so much inside that he had held his breath. And now, now he needed a drink, a hit. All that shit he was thinking before about needing to detox again needing to take a break. He'd reassess that later. That was a problem for another day, another night, not tonight. He didn't feel like going home, and there was only one place he wanted to be this late at night. Down the stairs, underground, black out the night. He needed to score, needed a righteous hit or two of the purest of the pure to put this night behind him, clear the wizard or whoever the fuck from his mind. Desperately in need of some stranger's hand in a desperate land. He reached the rock and roll circus quicker than he thought and made his descent. He would have to go real low in order to get real high. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. Right, the 27 Club is scored and co-written by myself, Jake Brennan. Zeth Mundy is the lead writer and editor on the show. Matt Bowden mixes the show. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. The 27 Club is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at DoubleElvis.com on the 27 Club series page. The 27 Club is released weekly every Thursday. Season 1 features 12 episodes on Jimi Hendrix, which are all available for you to binge right now, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to The 27 Club on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your shows. And if you'd like to win a free 27 Club poster designed by the man himself, Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for 27 Club on Apple Podcasts or hashtag subscribe to 27 Club on social media. And we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. You're going to want to give that a follow. So get out there and spread the word about 27 Club. And as always, you can find me blabbing about other crazy rock stars and my other shows, Disgraceland and Blood on the Tracks. And you can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. 
Rockarola. What's up for your ears? Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, hosted by MC8 and Big Steel. It's every Thursday, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Let's go. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 